This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best author interviews directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Here's one of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio Archives. We hope you enjoy it, and check our site on September 14th for our brand new show, PW Insider. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Eugenia Chang on the line. Her new book is How to Bake Pie. Hi, Eugenia. So glad you could join us. Hi. Thanks for having me. So how did you come up with this wonderful conceit as, as a math cookbook is math book, or math book is cookbook? Well... I love math and I love food. And unfortunately, most people seem to love food more than they love math. (laughs) And it makes me a bit sad that so many people don't like math because I think that it's fun and exciting. So it makes me sad that it's misunderstood and it's thought of as being boring and irrelevant. And it all started when I found that I had a way of explaining quite high-level math to my university-level students using food. And not only did it help them understand the concepts better, it also made it fun and memorable and gave them a way to think of math differently from the way that they'd ever thought about it before. So gradually I started using more and more different and admittedly slightly crazy food experiments to demonstrate math concepts. And then the whole thing came together and I thought, well, I'd like to show this to more people than just my students. And so then it turned into a book. So uh, give us an example of one of your mathematical recipes. One of my mathematical recipes is for gluten-free brownies. And it's explaining the fact that, well, in normal life, there are quite a few people now who don't eat gluten, either because they're allergic to it or because they simply want to avoid it. I avoid eating gluten because, you know, it makes me look pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's it's a mathematical principle as well, that if you understand the principle of how something works, then you might be able to go to a different world where things work slightly differently. Maybe you don't have some of the tools that you had in your previous world, and you can still do something similar, like make brownies, even though you don't have access to wheat anymore. Okay, so uh, is it an actual recipe that we could bake from? It is, yes. Every chapter of my book starts with a recipe, which is a recipe that I have mostly made up myself and one of the things that I cook myself quite often. But it's also something that introduces the mathematical concept of that particular chapter. So, for example, there's also a chapter about generalization, which starts with a recipe generalizing a a normal cake to a slightly more uh, strange cake to cater for people's food habits, let's say, because a lot of people have interesting food habits these days. Um, So we were wondering what the publishing process was like for this, because usually math books and cookbooks are are fairly far apart. Um, Did you get someone testing your recipes? Did you get people checking your theorems? I, there were various 
there were various stages, it's true. And I'm not sure if there was a formal recipe testing process. <laughs> Certainly various people have tested my recipes. And I had some of my lovely PhD students uh, check the mathematical parts of it. And in fact, I've been teaching the whole book to my students at the School of the Art Institute this semester. Uh, so they were art students and they were baking the recipes. They would turn up to class and say, I tried this recipe. It was great. So that was fun. So, you know, you had mentioned about you had mentioned that people maybe find math uh, not relevant or uh, boring, but but I think many people find it just complex, and uh, it, and so give us an example, if you could, another way of how you might present a math equation or a math problem through through food or anyhow else. Well, the first part of my book is explaining what I believe math really is, because part of the misunderstanding around math is that often people think it's just about numbers and equations, and really at a higher level, it's about how to think logically. It's not just about solving equations and solving uh, slightly pointless word problems. And my aunt was telling me a story the other day about how she remembers beating her head against a brick wall trying to solve some problem involving chickens and rabbits and a cage and saying, if you have this many feet, how many chickens and how many rabbits must there be? <laughs> Which is so pointless. I mean, when would you ever try to figure out how many chickens... First of all, when would you ever have chickens and rabbits in a, a cage together? <laughs> right, right. Secondly, why would you ever try and count them by counting the feet? And that's the kind of thing that makes math seem particularly ridiculous and pointless right, right whereas what i show in my book is different thought processes that are involved in mathematics and so the book is arranged not according to subjects exactly but by thought processes so there's a chapter on abstraction because the first principle of mathematics is that you want to study everything using logic and the thing is that nothing in the world behaves logically I don't, you don't, I dare say. Nobody behaves logically. Things don't behave logically. My computer doesn't behave logically. It's just been crashing for no particular reason all morning. And so to do mathematics, you have to move away from the real world and go into a world of ideas. And that's what I think can make it seem complicated because the world of ideas isn't something you can get your hands on. You just have to think about it inside your head and that's difficult because you can't watch anyone do it either if you watch me thinking inside my head nothing will happen <laughs> and so that's why I use recipes to develop the ideas and give people a way of thinking about the ideas so that there's a way into this strange abstract world which is on the one hand not so much to do with real life but on the other hand the idea is it's supposed to be easier. I mean, this is the really tragic thing about the way math is taught. Math is supposed to be easier because it's the only place where you don't have to use guesswork, intuition, uh, yelling, aggression, any of those things. You just use sheer logic and everything behaves exactly the way it's supposed to. And somehow it turns into this world which is extremely complicated. And I think that's a shame. When so in our starred review of your book, we, we say that you often depart from mathematical theory to highlight the pragmatic values of logic and rationality as employed by mathematicians in everyday life. Uh, would you agree with this? And if so, talk to us about it. Wow. Well, I was greatly inspired by my piano teacher who, who always taught by telling stories. And the stories were usually nothing to do with playing the piano whatsoever, but had a kind of moral, a bit like an Aesop's fable. I always loved Aesop's fables when I was little. And so I tried to tell a lot of stories that, that 
people can relate to because math is if it's about some shapes or some numbers or or some abstract things you can't really relate to it emotionally whereas if you tell a story i hope that people can relate to it emotionally and then see the point of the thought process for example there's a story about pickpocketing and putpocketing where if you imagine you have a 20 dollar bill in your pocket and then someone steals it without you noticing and then somebody else, bizarrely, puts a $20 bill in your pocket without you noticing. And at this point, you believe you have a $20 bill in your pocket. And you're right. But the reason that you know it is wrong, because you don't know the bizarre, complicated train of events that has happened. And math is more about understanding why something is true than just seeing the, the, the answer in the end. And if you don't understand the correct reasoning for why it's true, then you haven't really got the math part right. So um, one of the things that I loved when I was a, a math tutor many, many years ago, I was working with, with teenage girls, uh, and, and they would come in with this idea that math was hard, and particularly that math was hard for teenage girls. Like These were oh, kids who'd been very bright and had no trouble, mm-hmm. and then they sort of hit puberty, and they felt like their math skills leaked out their ears. Um, and I just loved sort of showing up and being like, no, you can like be a cool chick who loves math. Um, Cooking is one of those things that's seen as very gendered in this culture. Um, Is that partly a way of reaching women who might think that math is out of reach at the same time that they can have or double a recipe or, you know, figure out how to split something among five people and make sure everyone gets fed? I didn't specifically think about cooking in order to reach towards women. I do think about those gender issues a lot, of course, because I am a woman and I am a mathematician and it is a very, very heavily male-dominated subject. And there are interesting studies about where where it is that those gender differences start and why people hit the particular walls that they hit. And one thing I find interesting is that uh, I've taught for many years in different institutions. And now that I'm teaching at the School of the Art Institute, it's the first time that I've had a class that's been predominantly female. And that has been, that has been very interesting to me. And as for, the, as for the cooking thing, I want to stress that it's not just about doubling recipes or splitting things up. It's about the principle that you can take a bunch of ingredients in the kitchen and just fiddle around and do what you want with them. And that's what, when cooking becomes really fun, I think, is when you start making up your own recipes rather than just following someone else's recipe. It's good to start by following someone's recipe, but if you understand the principle behind it, then you can invent things for yourself and you can invent things that may or may not be delicious. And it doesn't really matter if, if you're just cooking for yourself. Well, if it's not delicious, you try again and you make something more delicious. And the same is actually true of higher level math. And this is the secret that doesn't get told to children in high school, which is that in math, you just also take some ingredients and you see what you can create and see how delicious it's going to be at the end. And that's how research works. And it's really a shame that high school math is so different from research math. Research math is so much fun where you just build things and see what happens. High school math isn't like that at all. And so I've decided that it would be nice to show people the really fun, creative part instead of having to pass millions of exams and get to grad school before you get to see it. So you've obviously taught a lot of different types of students. Who's the audience for this book? Who is it aimed at? The audience for this book is uh, people who perhaps fell off the math 
train at some point or for, for whatever reason didn't become a mathematician, either because they were just better at something else or because they got stuck and hit some kind of ceiling. Most people hit a math ceiling at some point and at that point they suddenly discover that they, they can't get beyond some particular thing and they get stuck and then they go off in a different direction. But perhaps later in life they become curious about what it's really about. And I've really noticed a change in the last 10 years or so. 10 years or so ago, I would tell people I'm a mathematician and everyone would go, ooh, I can't do math. And nowadays, people are much more likely to say, oh, I really wish I understood math more. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons I thought it was a really good time to write this book, because I keep meeting people who are really curious about it. And because I'm quite a social person, I love meeting people and talking to people about things. I've had a lot of time talking to non-mathematicians, kind of practicing talking about mathematics to people who aren't mathematicians. And that's where all the ideas for this book came from. I just basically wrote down the conversations that I've been having with people explaining what the work is that I do in a way that seemed to make, uh, make sense to them. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for me, I, I hit the math wall in calculus. Um, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, super arithmetic star. And then as soon as I got to the more abstract stuff, I, I flunked it three times. Um, and uh, it, that, that was that was pretty tough. And uh, I'd love to use a, a book like this to, you know, maybe get myself back on track. That sounds like it would be a lot of fun. But it sounds like it's also just as applicable to someone who hit uh, you know, factoring equations and went, nah. Right. And so the, the art students I've been teaching at the School of the Art Institute, they're all art students. And I began by asking them all what they thought of math previously. And a lot of them came up to me and said that they failed high school math mm. and that they were worried that they wouldn't be able to take this class. But I assured them that that was fine, that that they didn't need to be able to do anything. This, you don't have to be able to do anything to read this book. You just need to be curious about it. And I do honestly believe that math is like music and art, something that you can appreciate even if you can't do it. And it would be a shame if the only people allowed to listen to music were people who could play instruments. That would be absurd. And so I, I think that for math as well, it shouldn't be closed off to people who can't do it. I'm not expecting people to read this book and suddenly be able to go off and do a PhD in math. But right. if it means that people can appreciate the kinds of thought processes, logical thought processes, then, then I'm happy. Tell us a little bit about uh, teaching those art students. How did you end up at the Art Institute? It was a wonderful series of... Uh, spontaneous coincidences in a way. They were looking for somebody to cover a math class for someone's maternity leave. And I saw this email that came around to the University of Chicago where I was teaching at the time. And I thought, this sounds fantastic. And I wrote back and it turned out that the the professor who runs the science program there, Catherine Schaefer, she knew a, f- a friend of mine who's a musician they'd met at the South Pole. I like that story because it's so implausible that people should know each other from the South Pole, but they'd both been doing physics research there. And she looked at my CV and said, well, uh, how about being a scientist in residence? Because the scientist in residence program there is all about uh, bridging the gap between science and arts, bridging the gap that is in fact a bit contrived. I mean, at extremes, yes, art is very far away from science, but somewhere in the middle, they they meet a lot more than one might expect. And the president of the School of the Art Institute is Professor Walter Massey, who is a physicist. 
And so they have wonderful programs to bring science to art students because they believe, I think correctly, that just because you're an art student doesn't mean that, that you shouldn't have to understand some aspects of science. And so I devised a course which is called The Elegance of Abstraction. And it's about abstract thought, which is what my book is about. And so we, we did the book from start to finish during the course of the semester. And the students were absolutely, they were brilliant. They were fascinated by a different way of thinking. And because they're art students, nobody was going to go and use math specifically. It's not like teaching people who are going to be engineers or accountants or, or math teachers or work in finance or something. They were just interested in learning a particular way of thinking. And a lot of them ended up incorporating it in their art projects or just saying to me that it seemed much more relevant to their daily lives than any of the math they'd ever done before because it's all about how to think logically through situations. And that's helpful to everything in life. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Eugenia Cheng, who's the author of How to Bake Pie, an edible exploration of the mathematics of mathematics. So uh, I bet a lot of people are going to be confounded when they see that subtitle. Can you uh, explain the mathematics of mathematics? Yes, that's what I like to think of as the explanation of category theory. Category theory is my field of research, which is a very new relatively new for mathematics field of research. It's about 50 years old. And people often say to me, how on earth can you do research in mathematics? You can't just come up with a new number. Or they say, hasn't all of mathematics been understood? And so I really wanted to explain why there's always more mathematics that can be done. And in particular, what this very new branch of mathematics is. And it is the mathematics of mathematics. And in order to understand that, you first have to understand what mathematics is really. It's not about numbers. It's about logically thinking through logical things. And there are various ways that mathematics does that. It draws similarities. It draws analogies, makes analogies between different situations, basically because we're all really lazy. And so if we want to, if we find ourselves doing similar things over and over again, we go, wait, I don't want to do this over and over again. I want to to make a connection between all these different things so that I can somehow do them all at once. And so you do things like, it's like studying a building. You see, I'm already making an analogy. It's like <laughs> studying buildings where if you, if you t- strip away the wallpaper and the paint and take the windows out and you just look at the structure of the building, more, a lot more buildings will turn out to be the same if you just look at the structural parts as opposed to the bits that have been painted on top. And that's what mathematics does. It looks for the structure inside situations in the world to see what's holding them up. So the mathematics of mathematics is one step further than that. It takes mathematical situations and it draws similarities between those mathematical situations so that mathematicians can be more lazy or perhaps we should say more efficient in their studies. (laughs) 
So uh, talk to us a little bit more about the connection between art and music and, and math. Um, when we called you, you said you were going to get a music stand to put your microphone on. So clearly oh, yeah. you're, you're surrounded by <laughs> musical instruments and equipment right now. Yeah, that's right. I'm actually in my piano studio and music stands, are, I've discovered, are very handy as microphone stands as well because they, have, they can be placed at different angles and go up and down. Of course, that's not the connection that, that you were really talking about <laughs> but between math and music. No, um, give, give us a sense. I mean, you, you say you're in a piano studio. Obviously, you, you also uh, you know, have this interest in art because you were immediately captivated by the idea of being at the Art Institute. So, so where, where is that connection between math and art, between math and music? The, the math that I do is very creative it, and it feels a lot like an art to me because I'm not trying to solve particular problems. There are some mathematicians who just see a problem like Fermat's last theorem and a lot of mathematicians spent hundreds of years between them trying to solve that particular problem. But the work I do is more about creating things. So you take some, some starting point and then you create some new mathematical world in order to see what will happen there and you don't really know what's going to happen there but you just kind of wander off into it and see what's there it's like the difference between going out and looking for the Loch Ness monster because someone's told you the Loch Ness monster is there as opposed to wandering around hacking your way through a jungle to see what creatures are hidden inside it and the work I do is more about building things up to see what kinds of structures you can make and for me that it does feel very creative and music for me, well, the, the link between math and music is complicated because sometimes for me it feels like the exact opposite and I play, I play the piano and I perform a lot and playing the piano often feels like I'm balancing myself out with the exact opposite extreme from music. But on the other hand, there are some pieces of music that feel a lot like doing math and in particular Bach when I play Bach I feel like all my brain cells are lining up mm -hmm. in exactly the right way I need to do mathematics and sometimes if my brain won't calm down enough to do mathematics I'll sit down and play Bach for a while and I'll feel mm. like it's all calming down and all lining up ready for me to do it so what came first uh for you uh math or music oh uh interesting question they both came very very early and I started learning the violin when I was three, and I started playing the piano when I was four. And around about the same time, it was my mother who got me really interested in mathematical ideas. And it's really thanks to her, it must be thanks to her that I got so interested in math, because honestly, the stuff we did at school was so boring. I'm very sympathetic to everyone who thinks math is boring, because I think that school math is often extremely boring. <laughs> but fortunately, my mother showed me some things that made me believe and, well, no, I was completely convinced that there was something more beautiful waiting for me if I just stuck out these boring math lessons for long enough. Well, I think in the same ways, um, uh, school English classes can be boring. The way uh, texts are introduced to students and when they're introduced to them uh, as, as assignments rather than pure enjoyment, or at least it was when mm -hmm. I was growing up. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I'm asked, what was your, what was your mother, like what, what, how did she get you into uh, math? Was she herself a mathematician? My mother is mathematical. She's, uh, she 
has degrees in mathematics and she um, worked in the mathematical field and she just showed me things that were really fun and I remember that one of the first things she told me when I was really young was how you can quickly add up all the numbers from 1 to 10 or 1 to 100 and you imagine that you've lined up all the numbers from 1 to 100 in a row and then you line them all up backwards from 100 to 1 underneath the ones from 1 to 100 so they're all in pairs and then you note that all the pairs add up to the same thing and this is a very famous uh, proof of how you add up all the numbers from one to something. And I remember I thought this was amazing. <laughs> and I was, very, I was quite young when she showed me this. And it's, it's not a difficult concept if you write it all down and, and watch it happening. And it's that kind of thing that I, made me know those patterns and those clever things. It was so satisfying and uh, I loved it. And, and it seems like with music, too, just looking at the staff of notes, that, that almost seems mathematical. And knowing that chord progressions are are kind of maybe logical or sound logical to our ears, maybe? Well, I like the fact that some of it is logical and some of it isn't. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what math is about. It's not about trying to make the whole world logical because the whole world isn't logical. And that's what makes it interesting. Because if the whole world were logical, then there, there wouldn't really be any poetry or art or excitement if it was all logical. We could just predict everything that was going to happen all the time. And the same is true for me in music, that I like understanding which parts are mathematical and then... I love the fact that there's always something you can't explain. You, know, you can try and explain why this particular piece of music makes me cry. But at, at a certain point, you won't be able to do it anymore just by using chord progressions and analysis. It just does make me cry. And I love the fact that, that there is some part that you can explain and some part that you can't explain. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what math does as well in life. Math takes the parts of life that you can explain logically and it explains them. But that's never going to be all of life. And there's always going to be some more out there that it can't explain. I think it's important to remember that because mathematicians can be a bit prone to thinking that math is the whole of life. And it really isn't. So you've got some instructional videos on YouTube called The Mathsters and the Catsters. Tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about those. Uh, well, I always had this dream when I was uh, young, <laughs> let's say, that... I wanted to make a textbook that had a DVD at the back, just like language books have, have audios so that you can listen to people talking. Because the abstract math I do, first of all, it's very fluid. You need to see diagrams growing. When, if you just see the whole diagram on the page, you can't see which bit. It's a bit like trying to learn Chinese from a book because the order in which you draw the, the the words, the stroke order really matters. And it's the same with the diagrams in my abstract mathematics. It really matters which way they're going and flowing and the way things flow around them. Plus, I always feel like books are so dry and they don't give you the human, the human element of how I feel about mathematics. And it, I really have found when I'm teaching that if I say how I feel about it, then it gives everyone an emotional link to something that's otherwise very dry and difficult to difficult to grasp hold of. So I had this dream, anyway, of including a DVD with a textbook. But in those days, it was really expensive to even dream of making, making a video on a DVD. And then time passed a bit, and suddenly there were video cameras everywhere, and YouTube got invented. <laughs> and so, um, so you, can, you can place that in the history of time. And one day at the end of a conference dinner, we were all a bit merry, and we were all, uh, someone was saying that they'd been learning the harmonica from YouTube. And I just thought, hey, 
we would teach category theory on YouTube. And so we uh, broke into someone's office <laughs> and because we knew, we knew he had a webcam and because none of us owned webcams at the time. We just knew this one guy had a webcam. So we broke into his, we did ask him first, but we broke into his office, stole his webcam and just pointed it at the chalkboard. And I made my first, my first video, which was about category theory. It was graduate level mathematics. And I particularly wanted to do that because there aren't many courses. Mm. At the time, there weren't many courses in it. So everyone was learning it out of books and kind of slightly missing the point of the spirit of it. They could get all the technical details, but they somehow missed the spirit. And I wanted to convey the spirit. So we watched, the first thing we did actually was we watched a lot of math videos on YouTube first and they were so boring. (laughs) They were (laughs) unbelievably, everybody talked in a monotone like this. And so I thought, okay, I have to be, whatever I do, I'm not going to talk in a monotone. And so... I made a big effort to be extremely lively. And so this first video, it's of great historical interest for me. The the video quality is terrible because it's just this cheap webcam and it's called Monads One and it's my first ever video. And it got, it was so popular. We made about 70 of those with, uh, this was with Simon Willerton, who's another mathematician at the University of Sheffield in England. And the key for us was not to do it in a sensible order. I don't like doing things in a sensible order in general. I like doing whatever I like doing. And I thought, well, I'll just do what I'll just teach whatever I feel like teaching at any given moment. And overall, eventually, it'll make a coherent whole. So we started right in the middle and we just jumped around. And eventually, after 70 videos, there was a coherent set of videos. And then I kind of thought, well, I would like to do this for high school students because I think that when I was at high school, I was very lucky because I got to go to the local university and watch some higher level math happening there. And not many, not everyone gets to do that. And so I thought, well, if I put this on YouTube, then everybody will get to see some of the more exciting higher level math. And maybe it'll get people more interested because not, not all schools have the, uh, the resources to stretch people in math because they have to concentrate on getting people through who who might fail but I thought well with YouTube now everybody can have access to something more interesting than the stuff that's maybe boring them at school so that's how that's how that started so that was aimed at high school students who are and and beginning university students who are just bridging that gap between high school math and high level math and then it just started branching out from there and then I did more things with food to capture the hilarious food experiments that I'd been doing because that seemed to go particularly well on video as well because you can't really do food experiments as, as audio or in a book. <laughs> Except that I've just done the book. It goes with the, the, the book explains all those things, but it's, it's nice for videos because then you can kind of throw food around and have fun. Well, when you talk about adding the, the human element, uh, I just I love the animated way that you talk about it and I'm sure that that's all in your book as well. Well, I'm very happy to say that people who've been reading it already have said to me, it really sounds like me talking. And my friends have been saying this because they know how I talk. They say, it really, it really feels exactly like having a chat with me, they said. They can hear my voice. And I tried to write it as if I was having a chat with someone because I don't want it to be one of those math books where uh, you get kind of stuck and then you put it down because you're stuck. And I know that I've had that experience with with plenty of math books and if I've had that experience with math books everyone 
must have had had as well. And I want it to be a book that that you really can get to the end of and where it doesn't feel like an effort. And uh, so far, I've had people who are really not mathematicians at all telling me that they they just kept turning the pages and also they kept laughing out loud and disturbing people. (laughs) Well, we've been talking with Eugenia Chang and you can find her book, How to Bake Pie, in stores right now. Maybe read a few pages while you're there and uh, giggle to yourself. Eugenia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. And don't forget, PW Insider launches on September 14th. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 